regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for all conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. This is Datacast, why hold long-form and in-depth conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Ajun Narayan, the co-founder and CEO of Materialize. Materialize is a streaming database for real-time applications and analytics, built on top of a next-generation stream processor called Tambi Dataflow. Ajun was previously an engineer at Cosworth Labs and holds a PhD in computer science from the University of Pennsylvania. So Ajun, it is my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Fabulous. By way of introduction, I believe that you grew up in Bangalore, India, and then you actually went to a boarding school called UWC Mahindra College for High School. Would you mind sharing some of these formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah, so I grew up in Bangalore, which I think is a very different city to what it was when I grew up. It was a sleepy little retirement town, very quiet when I grew up, and now it's a major metropolis with, I don't even really like going back because it's it's unrecognizable <laughs> to what I remember growing up. I think I had a very different experience to what people picture when they think Bangalore. I ended up going to a boarding school because I got a very generous scholarship. I was not planning to leave home, but this was high school. A friend convinced me to apply, and then I went visited, and it was this amazing campus near Bombay with amazing resources that I'd never seen before. So I ended up wanting to go once I saw the place. It was very formative because it really opened my eyes to... I guess what we could call the liberal arts, right? The full breadth of experiences and educational possibilities because up until that point, I was a very narrowly focused science and mathematics focused student. Stereotypically, you might be able to picture. And I consider that a very fortunate, lucky break that I got exposed to that so early. That's what convinced me go deeper down that once I tasted a little bit of the liberal arts experience, I wanted more of that and went to a liberal arts college right after that in the United States. That was the whole reason that I chose to come to the United States. I think before that, my heart was set on getting into IIT, becoming an engineer and studying computer science or physics or engineering or something of that sort. Now, of course, if I look back, I don't know if that the final outcome is terribly that different given that I did eventually come back to study computer science, but I do think I learned a lot by taking the long road rather than the quick and narrow one. Interesting. When you say you got drawn into the liberal arts instead of just probably sticking with the STEM subject, I'm curious, like, what about the liberal arts that drawn you? I think foundational to a liberal arts curriculum is the inquisitive nature of asking a lot of profound questions that I was not asking. And I wasn't, I was very much focused on getting to the next level of my calculus textbook. I was very much focused on learning enough math so I could, oh, 
It's not that I wasn't inquisitive, but I was inquisitive in a very narrow way. I was very obsessed with physics, right? Like I wanted to understand and go deeper in theoretical physics. And that was the only thing I was obsessed with. And I think that's not an unnatural direction that a lot of scientifically minded kids go into, right? Like theoretical physics is deep and profound in, in one dimension. But this sort of opened me up to history, philosophy, literature, and economics, and the social sciences, sociology, in a way that I had not really seriously considered that there were hard and profound questions in these fields as well up until that point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Sort of cultivate that desire to ask more profound questions rather than just analytical question based on just the medication. So you mentioned a little bit about that you decided to go to college in the U.S. and more specifically, you went to Williams College to study computer science and economics. I think you also did the one year stint at the Computer Lab, studying abroad at the University of Cambridge, I believe. How would you describe your overall academic experience at Williams? I loved it. It was exactly what I was seeking after high school. I had, I had not been to the U.S., so I didn't really know what I was getting into. Like my only guide was like the U.S. news rankings of colleges and universities. I ended up at Williams because it was highly ranked and the number one that year. And so I, when I got in, I didn't even know where I was going. It was, I remember we were very excited and celebrating on admissions day and getting quite drunk at which point one of my friends asked, where's Williams? And we didn't know the answer. My roommate and I, we had both gotten in. We didn't know the answer. And so we were running to the one part of campus at 1 a.m. that had internet to Google this question. And so I ended up in rural Massachusetts having no idea that was where I had picked. And it's a great setting for a college because when you're an immigrant and you know, see a lot of immigrants in America in college spending way too much time with other immigrants. So I think it's like my, the number one thing I would recommend you don't do is hang out with people who you could have totally hung out with, had you, but had you stayed back where you immigrated from. And you probably have a lot of shared experiences. And I know it's easy and it's comfortable, but what was nice about Williams was it forced me to spend more time a group of people that Americans, the people who, who inhabit this country. And I think that was a very fortunate setting, as well as a wonderful education. I originally intended, started the sort of major series in history and music and economics and math. And I discovered that I was mediocre at music. It's possibly the series of classes I've ever worked hardest in my entire life. It's the hardest A minus I've ever earned. <laughs> That taught me a little bit about maybe I'm not cut out to be some sort of world-renowned composition or composer or performer. And it was also the first time I'd studied academic computer science. Like I'd always been programming on a computer as a kid, but programming is very different from computer science, which is more the focused on the why and the how and what is possible and the algorithmic underpinnings. As a kid, at least, I, when I programmed, I wasn't deeply aware about any of these things, right? I wasn't thinking deeply about the data structures. I was just writing scripts as fast as I could to achieve some specific task. And I fell in love with that. And that's how I chose to, to study computer science and economics. It's a, another nice thing about the liberal arts education is you choose your major quite late. You can start multiple majors and only really commit to finishing one or two towards the end of your second year. I did spend a year abroad at Cambridge, which was a less, I think, interesting experience. I went there with a lot of expectations, but in retrospect, I could have probably 
better have spent an additional year at Williams. I think I would, my ideal length of a liberal arts education is more like six years or five years. And I gave myself three by spending a year away. But it did prepare me a little bit for following up college with a PhD. I think that it gave me a clearer picture of what an academic research institution would look like. And I liked what I saw. So that was really the impetus for going directly to a PhD after college. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing a little bit about the whole experience that you collect from that liberal arts setting. I'm curious, you mentioned in your previous answer that the liberal arts education asked you to ask very profound questions about a variety of subjects. What were some of the profound questions that you was asking yourself during your time at Williams? I got really into history and philosophy, political philosophy specifically. Today, most of my sort of for pleasure reading or things that I do in my spare time are engaging with history or political philosophy. I care deeply about trying to understand the causal chain of events. And I think it's a very valuable method of inquiry because it's so hard to contrast this with economics where the gold standard of sort of understanding causality is a randomized control trial, right? Like you find two villages, this is, I got pretty into this in economics, which was understanding which poverty interventions work, right? Like which, well, you, you find two villages, which are as, as close to each other as possible. And you do your intervention in one and not the other, and then you measure, right? This allows you to make causal inferences to a very high degree of certainty if you design your trial correctly. If it, and of course, all the experimental design, all that is hard. And I loved all of that. But what's harder about history and engaging with history is you can't do that. Like you have to try and understand causality without any clean interventions or instrumental variables that you have under your control in order to draw out what works and what doesn't. It's perhaps the hardest intellectual challenge in trying to come up with clear predictive theories of how the world works and how humans work. And I found that, I think that is, and that continues to be the sort of most profound line of inquiry that I find deeply fascinating. That makes a lot of sense. It's really like we cannot perform counterfactual on historical events. And so we have to. Yeah. And not to get too uh, crass about it, I think there's certainly applications in business and my day to day in trying to wrestle with what we could have done, what we should have done, what we should do next. Although I feel obligated to say that I'm a, and I've drunk all the Kool-Aid on the liberal arts, like the reason they're valuable is not because they'll make you a better businessman or anything of that sort. It's they're valuable because they're valuable. There's no end goal here beyond the sort of enriching of the human experience. Yeah, for sure. That the pursuit of intellectual knowledge for the sake of curiosity rather than anything go. And this is another quick note about your time that you mentioned that this is the first time when you really dive into academic computer science compared to your previous experience, mostly just writing programming. And this is actually relevant to the next question when you decided to do your PhD. When you study academic computer science, was there any particular subject that draws your interest in within that broader or CSMIC field, right? I mean, there's a lot of different specializations you can go into. What were some of the branch of CS that sort of really spoke to you? Yeah. I think a little bit here, my interest in economics and finance played a role here. I was interested in the branches of computer science that I viewed had the most impact on technology, on society. And in my view, that's networks and databases. If you look from 
sort of total market size databases and and networks are and operating systems are the sort of juggernauts and of large corporations of large sort of innovation budget amount of R&D. And then if you get a little bit away from software, I was also interested in this. It was in hardware. It was in, I always viewed Intel as the company that did the most R&D and had the most impact in the technology sector. And so my interest was as close as possible to what I would joke was the brick and mortar of computer science, which is the chips, the operating systems, the databases, the networks. I wanted to engage with or work at Cisco, Oracle, Microsoft, Intel, which I viewed as foundationally having built the industry. Up. And that was how I picked a field. It was, funnily enough, not due to inherent computer science, love of operating systems. It was, I thought, it had the most impact. And between networks and distributed systems and operating systems, I was pretty indifferent fell into distributed systems a little bit by accident because I had a, and I can get into this, and I believe strongly when choosing a PhD, choosing mm -hmm. an advisor is more important than choosing a field or choosing a institution. So the order in which I chose what I ended up doing was I was picking an advisor who I thought would be a great mentor. And I think that this worked out very well for me and I would endorse this as for anyone doing a PhD. The thing that matters most is less what you do and more who you're going to be spending 90% of your time learning to do it from, which is your advisor. And that's how I fell into distributed systems because my advisor had a few different projects and networks and the distributed systems. And so I was like, anything he does is going to be a fit for me. And he had a project on differential privacy that I found very exciting. And that's how I fell into doing distributed systems and differential privacy. Absolutely. Let's talk about George journey right up to Williams, and you decided to join the PhD program in computer science at the University of Pennsylvania. And as you mentioned, you were advised by a professor named Andreas Habelen, and your work focused on the intersection of digital system, privacy, and security. When you look back on the arc of your PhD experience, what's the thread that ties your research together? Yeah, so I fell into it because I chose an advisor based off of my read on how good a person he was going to be at mentoring me. And he was a phenomenal advisor, he's a phenomenal researcher, and spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one teaching me various things. I think most people misunderstand what a PhD is because it's very different from undergraduate. In undergraduate, people are teaching you things they already know the answers to, right? So the professor is not pushing the frontier by teaching you and they're not figuring out as they go along, right? They figured out the syllabus, every test where you have a question, there's a defined answer. There's a, there may be multiple right answers. There may be nuances and that's all great, but fundamentally, like they're teaching you things that they already know. And in a PhD, it's very different is that you are now together trying to figure out something that you don't know the answers to. And there may not be an answer. Right? So you may be going up a dead end, right? That there may be nothing there. And so the experience is not so much sort of face-to-face, -face, teacher teaching student, it's side-by-side -side exploring together, which means, and you're going to learn by watching. You're going to learn by watching them try and solve something. It's quite often the case that the professor, at least in the first few research projects, will be doing most of the work and you're just helping along a little bit. You're 
holding the bags in, on an expedition is the analogy I would use. You're not so much choosing where to go or guiding the ship, right? You're just making sure that the decks are scrubbed clean. And then over time, you, you become more of an equal. And that's really when you graduate, when the institution, but mostly your advisor, decide that you could do this on your own without that day-to-day -day supervision. I remember I have many fond memories of working with Andreas because we were trying to build practical systems. So a little bit about differential privacy. Differential privacy is a mathematical guarantee about the amount that a... So when you have a data set and you want to tell people some result of this data set, you might also want to preserve the privacy of the individuals in that data set. So you might say, I've collected this data set of highly confidential health information but I have concluded as a result of analyzing this data set that people who take this drug will have better life outcomes than people who don't take this drug when they have this condition. That's obviously a valuable fact. That's obviously a valuable piece of information that you want to teach, that you might want to share. At the same time, any individual row in that data set might be, uh, James went to uh, the hospital with this condition on this day and got this drug. It's highly confidential, right? So you want to preserve the privacy of the individuals while giving statistical, strong statistical claims about the data set as a whole. Differential privacy is, at its core, information theory, a claim about information theory and statistics. We were trying to build practical systems that enforce these differential privacy guarantees, but could be used like a database, right? So we were trying to solve a lot of database questions and layer on differential privacy. As a result, we also had to engage with classic database issues, security, distribution, performance, and with the lens of building a differentially private system, what I really enjoyed about it is it gave me a grand tour of computer science as we attempted to build. We built a series of systems. We used some fairly advanced programming languages type theory in order to enforce statically the differential privacy properties that we needed to enforce. We had to build our own sort of custom query execution runtime because we had to protect against uh, security adversarial queries that leaked information through side channels, and a classic security problem where you can protect the main channel, but if people can learn things based off of, say, the time it took you to answer the question, then they can leak a lot of information. And so what was nice about it is I got a grant tour of security, programming languages, databases, distributed systems. And while I really enjoyed my PhD, I really enjoyed the time with my advisor, and I haven't done anything with differential privacy post-PhD, it was what was a perfectly fine opening question to engage with all of these other fields that I highly enjoyed engaging with. Yeah, I really like what you said here. I'm just like giving you that a grand tour of privacy, security, programming language. So you have a broader holistic overview of how database and operating system work. You already mentioned a little bit about like that focus of your work for your PhD. I want to go a little bit in more details on that. So I got a chance to briefly look over the abstract of your PhD dissertation, which is on a system that can be differentially private things. And more specifically, you have designed new runtimes that achieve the mathematical differential privacy guarantees in the face of three real-world challenges. Number one is to secure the runtimes against adversaries. Number two is to enable readers to verify that answers are accurate. And number three is to deal with data distributed across multiple domains at a very high level. Could you mind briefly going over some of these challenges and the novel solution being proposed for the system that you build during your PhD? Yeah, the key claims of differential privacy are mathematical guarantees, but these mathematical guarantees 
in order to be achieved, they need to be executed by some runtime. So let's call it a database system, right? And immediately now you have the challenge of, all right, that's great. Like differential privacy gives you a guarantee that the output that you got from your query is safe, but users still have questions that are now harder to answer because the differential privacy protection, right? So if you run a database query, you might get an answer that you don't understand or you're like, this looks funny. And you might have follow-up questions or you might just go look at the raw data to try and figure out how this, and you can't do that in a differential privacy setting because the entire point of differential privacy is to protect that raw data. So how do you give people the same sort of guarantees? How do you give people the confidence that there wasn't a bug in the system when they're not allowed to look at the whole thing end to end? There's a line of research on zero knowledge verification, which is essentially allowing users to gain confidence that a program was executed correctly without learning anything about the inputs of the program or the intermediate states that it goes through. They only know the final result, and they only know that the program was executed exactly as specified because there's additional sort of metadata that they get. And then the proof is that the metadata does not leak anything about the inputs. And that's the hard part. Now, these systems are extremely not performant. They are very much academic prototypes. And so we were trying to push the limit on these systems to actually give us this privacy guarantee while being somewhat practical to use so that if, say, we wanted to run some computation that was very important, most of the settings we looked at were medical data, where it really is valuable for researchers to get access to this data and at the same time, the amount of barriers in their way, because at the end of the day, it is protected medical information about individuals and their medical records. And we wanted to build systems that would solve this. Another one is when you were trying to combine the results of multiple data sets without centralizing the data. You can imagine this is hard because step one here is the database, the user may not see the answer, but the database manager or the DBA gets all the private data in the world in one central box. Now that's itself a single point of failure that's liable for breaches. And so there are certain classes of questions where you know, one of the things we went down is, can we ask join questions? So questions, so in the database sense, can we select and join across multiple data sets where these data sets were kept in two different systems and the systems themselves were not trusting each other? That was a cool sort of innovative result that turns out that is possible, although at a pretty high performance cost. Yep. Thanks for providing a little bit of details context around your work there. Just a final note about your PhD experience, besides the academic focus, PhD is about five, six years long, and I'm sure you got a chance to collaborate with a lot of other fellow graduate students and researchers. When I look at your old academic page, you actually also was a teaching assistant for a few like classes on cloud computing and web system, right? Would you mind sharing a little bit of the lesson key takeaways from your collaboration and teaching on your time as a PhD student that benefit your later journey working in the industry? I loved teaching. I think teaching was, if I wasn't doing what I was doing, I think my number one top choice would be teaching. One of the things I learned was I would actually like to teach younger kids. So basically, I think I would really enjoy life as a primary school or middle school science and math teacher more than high school or college. Because one of the most frustrating things is when you have an eager to learn student, but 
they're not understanding something because they don't understand the prerequisites. So in college, I did a lot of sort of volunteer teaching for high school math students. And the number one thing, they have a test, it's like, I can't do those calculus tests and like you help them. And then you, it's really sad when you realize that the problem is they're bad at algebra. Like, and I'm like, hey, you got a test in two days, but really what you need is an extra three months of going back like two years and really solidifying your algebra game. And so <laughs> that was one of my biggest frustrations and takeaways from teaching was you have to intervene as early as possible to shore up the fundamentals. I think it also really helped build an empathy muscle. Nobody in any job is trying to do a bad job. If they're not performing, it's usually because they have some misunderstanding or they're missing some foundational knowledge. And a lot of very good teaching, particularly one-on-one, -on -one, is this sort of diagnosis by the teacher of like, where is that misconception? Like how far back? Why did you arrive at this incorrect conclusion? Because you believe something that is wrong at a lower layer, and now you've built some structure of understanding on top of that is incorrect. And maybe a subtle misunderstanding. And as a consequence, you've gone for a quite long time without realizing that's not how the world works. And the best teachers I knew and the ones that I really learned from were exceedingly good at doing this diagnostic with very quickly and with very limited information they would. And I think that's a very valuable skill in managing, which is just everyone's on the same, same team trying to do the right thing. But you have to very quickly and efficiently diagnose why they may have not done something correctly. Thanks for sharing that insight, forcing the student to learn the fundamentals as well as building that empathy muscle to diagnose potential misconception when those issues arise. That's what the I main things you learn from teaching that, you know, very applicable being a manager and being a CEO this day. And let's circling back into your career trajectory. So you finished your PhD, defended, and then you decided to become a software engineer at the Kostros Lab. Most specifically, you work on distributed SQL query execution and benchmarking performance in Kostros DB. During your time there, you also wrote the Kostros DB performance guide and deep dive of Rocks DB on the Kostros Lab blog. First of all, why did you decide to join Kostros Lab at this point? And then furthermore, could you mind sharing a little about the major engineering challenges that your team had to encounter during the development of Kostros DB? Absolutely. It's a bit of a long story how I ended up at Cockroach. It really began halfway through my PhD as I was really enjoying the work and getting more and more up to speed on the ecosystem of distributed systems. I quickly realized that of the various fields that I was touching, which was programming languages, core privacy research itself, security, and distributed systems, the one that I found most enjoyable was distributed systems. And so I spent more and more time surveying that field and spending more time focusing on the distributed systems problems that were in front of me. That's when I became more and more aware of the contemporary research going on in the distributed systems field. Now, distributed systems is actually a pretty small field, relatively speaking, compared to, say, security or machine learning, which is just gigantic. My wife, who I met during my PhD, she's a, she did her PhD in machine learning and is a machine learning researcher. So sometimes I compare and contrast to machine learning just from that personal experience that she has. And it's like a much, much larger field with way, way much more going on. But in distributed systems, a pretty small field, some of the research that was going on at the time, I found very interesting. In particular, Frank McSherry, now my co-founder, 
back then, he was one of the inventors of differential privacy. So that's how I really met him was I was doing differential privacy research and he had invented that field along with several others, of course. He was doing distributed system research into stream processing, which I found very strange. I was like, why are you switching into stream processing? What's so special about stream processing? I knew nothing at the time about stream processing. One of the great joys of doing a PhD is you have infinite time to figure out answers to questions. What the hell is going on to stream processing? Let's just start from scratch. I know nothing about stream processing, but you have all this time. You have all of these professors who you can bother and learn from. And I started to go pretty deep into sort of distributed computing, including streaming. At the time, Databricks had just been founded. It was a Series A startup. Apache Spark had just won one of the academic awards in the distributed systems field. Frank had led a project to build a next-generation stream processor that had won awards in the distributed systems field. There was sort of this renaissance of scalable databases. I don't want to say starting with, but certainly one of the most famous ones that have come out of that is Google Spanner. So Google Spanner won several academic awards for being a scalable, fully consistent, globally available distributed system. And these were the projects that were winning the awards in the field that I was paying close attention to, because as a grad student, you want to look at where's the best of the best? What does that look like? And that's really how I, I followed Apache Spark, Spanner, and NIAD was what Frank's project was called, a stream processor. And I got pretty obsessed with these projects. I remember spending a lot of time with Andreas in our reading groups, and I would argue very passionately that people should stop building databases until they can meet the bar of the consistency guarantees of Spanner. Of course, at least at the time, I was a pretty polemical grad student, so I would take very aggressive stances saying, why are we reading this paper? This paper is completely subsumed by Spanner, like it should never have been written. And similarly with Frank's work on stream processing, it really seemed to subsume a lot of the other research that was going on. It was step function improvement in what could be done in streaming. And it was competitive performance-wise with batch systems. Before this, before NIAD, batch and streaming were two different choices you had to make where... Do you care enough about speed to make severe compromises in the expression of the queries you could do, the scalability with which you could do them? So you could do dumb things fast, but if you want to do interesting things, you had to revert to the time what was the gold standard was Apache Spark, scale out compute. And along comes NIAD, which says, you don't have to make this trade-off. Here's a stream processor that can do everything batch processors can do faster than most batch processors. And hey, also it's a streaming system. So you get that for free. And my sort of jaw was on the floor when I I was extremely skeptical that this was true. And the amount of diligence that I ended up doing as a grad student to understand whether these core claims were true was led me to believe that, hey, this is the future. So I actually tried to convince Frank to start a company back then. I said, hey, you should just commercialize this stuff just like the Databricks people are doing. That was the original pitch for Materialize was, why don't we do Databricks plus streaming? He was not interested in this at all. And so the other project I was really interested in was Spanner. And as a result, I found Cockroach, who were a Series A company with under 20 people that were doing an open source clone of Spanner. And I thought this was a very promising commercial enterprise to take this mainstream. There was a lot of different product decisions that they had made that I thought were more appealing than Google Spanner itself, namely putting a Postgres compatible layer for the query layer building it as an open source project, I thought were 
more likely to let it succeed than Spanner being a Google-only, cloud-only product, which at the time, now there's a SQL layer. I think they've come around, but back then it was, you have to use our proprietary query language and interface layer. And so that's how I ended up at Cockroach, was as a result of my PhD, almost directly having engaged with the research and seeing these were the cutting edge projects coming out of academia at the time. At Cockroach, I don't want to say one of the worst engineers, but I wasn't, I was in the bottom half for sure. It was an amazing group of engineers, an amazingly complex product to build, and I was thrown in the deep end. And what I found was because I had this academic background, the most effective way I could contribute to the success of the company was in synthesizing and explaining all of these really hard things that we needed to effectively communicate, not just externally, but internally as well for our own sort of shared understanding as an engineering team, what we were doing, what we had to solve and things like that. And that's really how I started doing a lot of writing. The writing that we did at Cockroach was very effective from a marketing standpoint, but also just in a sort of internal understanding and clear communication standpoint, which is how I ended up writing about two things that I was very passionate about. First one being performance. Our performance was, as with all products, as with all projects, at, this is a sort of point in time statement. Cockroach is a very performance system now, but back then, there was a moment in time where I thought performance was our number one challenge and wanted to get to more precision as to what that meant. So performance, what does performance mean? It's not just raw queries per second, okay? Raw queries per second is like, what kind of queries? Let's get to more precision. What does the literature say? What do other databases do? What are the trade-offs of over-focusing on a single metric? Should we have a host of metrics, things like that? And really built the sort of performance goals and that really helped rally the set of engineers that myself included to improve our performance. I think we got more than an order of magnitude performance improvement on a database benchmark, the TPCC benchmark over two quarters. And I ended up writing that guide, which was really synthesizing both the initial motivations and then all the work we did and how you can get great performance out of Cockroach. And of course, since then, they've done much more than that. The second piece that I ended up writing a huge piece on was because I was spending a lot of time with the CTO and we would argue about whether the storage engine, which at the time was RocksDB. So RocksDB is an open source storage engine, database storage engine, mostly maintained by Facebook, which is a was a fork of LevelDB, which was a Google open source storage engine. The Cockroach co-founders, including the CTO, were ex-Googlers. They were very familiar with LevelDB, having built many internal systems at Google that were based on LevelDB. But it was buckling under the workloads we were putting it through at Cockroach. It wasn't quite the right architecture. And so I thought it was salvageable, and Peter thought it wasn't that we at Cockroach needed to build our own storage engine. There was a some set of inefficiencies that were introduced by the fact that Cockroach was written in Go, but RocksDB is written in C++, and Go is a managed memory environment, and C++ is a manually managed memory environment, and you had to for pretty large amounts of memory, essentially copying it in a redundant way that you might not have to if your storage engine was from the get-go in the Go management. We eked out a lot of performance gains. Just, I remember this was one of the moments where I was, I think, really learned my lesson that I'm a mediocre engineer 
but a pretty good scientist and product person was I identified a set of queries where there was a sort of order of magnitude speed up if we were cleverer about the way we push data from C++ to Go. And it took me about a month and I like made no progress on this. And like Spencer, the CEO was getting frustrated. He was like, hey, there's like an order of magnitude speed up that you pointed us to. Like, why aren't you getting it? And then one Friday, I sat down with Peter and he just coded the whole thing, like solved the whole thing in a single day. And I was like, okay, this is my future productivity is not trying to badly do in 30x as much time what Peter can do in a day. It's pointing Peter at the right problems that he should be solving because I'm good at identifying where these performance bottlenecks are. So at the end of that, I ended up writing that RocksDB guide. I think it was the outcome of a red team, blue team exercise almost, which is one team says, here's all the things that RocksDB is great for. We can't replace it with a storage engine. I wrote the guide from the perspective of let's keep RocksDB. And then that was the last work I did. And then after I left, they have a new storage engine. And it's a very performant one. I think they'd made the right decision. Yeah. Thanks for letting go of a little bit about why did you decide to drive CoSearch after your PhD. We talk about your engagement with Frank Mascheri later on in a few questions. And also thanks for sharing the context for those articles that you read and the key learning, like how your time has been better spent on identifying performance bottlenecks rather than actually writing system yourself. So that's actually a very interesting takeaway from that period. Just another question about your time at CoSearch. So you joined when the team was about 20 people, right? And I believe that you spent two, two and a half years at CoSearch. Two and a half, yes. How was the startup evolved throughout your time there? I'm a operational part of you. It was a phenomenal education in the various stages that a startup must go through. The first quarter I was there, we had an OKR, which was a single node database system should have uptime of 24 hours under continuous query load, which is a joke of an objective for a database. Like you would hope a database has more than 24 hours of uptime, but that was the state of things back then. And then by the time I left, after all that performance work, I mean, we were keeping I think I believe 10 node clusters up under extremely high query volume. Shortly after I left, they were pushing 100 node clusters that were saturating TPCC load generators. And I haven't kept up since because it's basically as scalable a system as you can find anywhere on in any database anywhere today. And so watching that journey, knowing how long it took and not panicking was maybe the number one skill I learned. The number two skill I learned was the effective communication you need to do to sell or market a database or really build user and customer confidence that you know what you're doing. And it's very different from what I see a lot of other vendors do. And I think we've copied the Cockroach model quite a bit at Materialize, which is to be extremely detailed and extremely honest. I think most people's instincts, because they're a startup, they're like, oh my God, we're going to run out of money. Like, it's so hard to build a database. They oversell. They go... This is the most polished database ever, 100x better. We solved it. We solved databases. We're done. Buy our database. And it's like the absolute opposite of what you should do because like no one's going to read that and believe a word of what you say, either in that press release or any other future announcement you ever make. The way that we approached communication at Cockroach was blogs that were extremely introspective and extremely honest. I remember we talked about stability. And there's all these Hacker News comments about, what a joke, this system, these people, how can they not keep a three-node cluster stable for 
a week. And we were like, yeah, this is uh, this is hard to keep a 3-0 cluster stable for a week. Here's all the problems we face. Here's the PRs. Like, here's the design challenges. But that's actually what you need to do because that builds so much trust with the people who really understand how hard this is, the architects and the principal level engineers and the directors and the VPs and people who've been around for decades who know that, hey, this is not a trivial problem to solve. Although you'll get chewed up on Hacker News a bunch from folks who think that you're an amateur. And those lessons, I think, served me very well ever since. Watching how we went from our communication early on to the commercial viability point, the point at which a cockroach was a scaling revenue operation and had a go-to-market team that was bringing in non-trivial amounts of revenue, watching that transition and that path firsthand, I think, was invaluable. I think I heard you sharing a few previous podcasts that Jotam at Koshrosh was actually like a masterclass in startup operation that really was invaluable for you to start materialize, right? Absolutely. Particularly because databases have such a long incubation period of R&D. I think they're very different from any other startup. I think most startups, basically there's this feedback loop where you're getting this commercial signals of success in a pretty quick feedback loop. The problem with databases is you're going to do multiple years of R&D, like three years of R&D more, in which you are not getting that feedback loop. So you have to be really clear what you're doing internally, really good at externally communicating the progress you're making. And if you don't see how that is, I struggle to, I don't know how you would gain the conviction to keep going and not give up. Absolutely. I want to double click on your later point about effective communication to discuss this very highly technical concept surrounding database. And as you already alluded to before, you start do a bunch of writings during your time at Cosmos Lab. In particular, you maintain a personal blog that mostly covers some of the technical topics, such as database transaction isolation semantics and the history of block structure merge trees. How has your writing practice benefited your day-to-day work designing database system in a production setting? So as I've alluded to earlier, many of the things that I was arguing for us doing, say the performance work, a lot of it, there was a lot of internal writing, right? So I think internal writing benefits from writing is a muscle. Like the more you write, the better you will get at it. <laughs> There's various blog post length things that I've written that are just various GitHub issues on the cockroach repo and the materialized repo. So that's to me the way one, and not to mention internal Google Docs and things like that. I think it's the clearest and most effective way to communicate that folks can learn. There's this sort of nonlinear accruing value to written work in a company because it persists. If you have a really effective communication style in a meeting, that's great, right? But say next week, somebody starts, joins the team, they didn't hear that. Whereas if you wrote it, the amount of onboarding material you've left behind as you've gone along is phenomenal at bringing people up to speed. And so I think writing has this sort of nonlinear accruing effect over time as you've got more and more written. I enjoy blog post writing. I wish I had more time for doing that. If anything, I would love to do more of it. The transactional isolation blog post and the log structure and merge tree blog posts were both written as a result of trying to convince some folks internally at Cockroach various things. So Kyle Kingsbury is a independent researcher and consultant who does testing of database guarantees. So he has some amazing blog posts, the Jepson blog posts. 
that every time he publishes a report or he basically dissects the system and really stress tests it to see if it lives up to the claims that it makes on correctness. And he writes these in-depth blog posts and they're incredibly valuable for users who are selecting between these databases and choosing between a database that's lying about its claims and one that's actually living up to them. When Kyle came and did a, an engagement at Cockroach, we were ourselves trying to improve our own understanding of what we were claiming and get to real precision. And as part of that, sort of understanding the nuances between serializability, strict serializability, and all these various sort of guarantees, I ended up doing enough reading and understanding that I ended up writing up that blog post, which I think still holds up. Similarly, log-structured merge trees, which are the core of the storage engine of RocksDB and Cockroach's new storage engine, are a data structure that is relatively less written about because its academic, its sort of invention lineage is more as a practical choice by industry distributed systems engineers. And as a result, there's less written about. You see this sometimes with ideas, right? One idea comes out of academia, so there's really great documentation in the form of a series of papers. One idea comes out of industry and there's one paper that's retrospective, like after they did the whole thing. And so there's a comparatively less written about it. And so I wanted to dig into sort of the history of log structured merge trees and when they were used, what systems were built that on this and how that sort of evolved because it was comparatively less written about it. And because we were built on a log structure and merge tree based storage engine, I thought it was important for us to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that context, that nonlinear accrual value of writing as a medium, as well as really, I think you mentioned it various by just really by writing down this documentation, you have to get a very precise level of details on how you could design the system in production and writing is almost like a fossil function for you to extract out these precise details. Now. One of your best performing blog posts is written in 2019 called The Philosophy of Computation Complexity, in which you argue that we were undergoing a scientific revolution in the field of computational complexity. And I believe this blog post came out as almost like a response to another piece written by Tyler Cohen, a very influential economist in the world, kind of tied back into your interest in economics, as we mentioned earlier. And I also found it quite interesting because it also might touch on what we mentioned in one of the earlier answers about asking foundational question about scientific inquiry back in Jolly Rush Day. Could you mind unpacking the argument presented in that blog post? Yeah, absolutely. So Tyler Cohen's blog is one of my favorite blogs. I read it basically every day. And there was an interesting article posed about what is, I forget the precise details, but the gist of it was like, what is philosophy? What has come out of philosophy that's interesting? Or why is, what has philosophy done for us recently? Or, and I think it was, I was hanging out with a close friend of mine and I was arguing that, hey, the answer is clearly huge revolution in our understanding of computational complexity in the last 50 years in a way that is deeply, in my mind, the successor set of improvement in our understanding of the universe akin to end of 19th century, early 20th century physics. So the revolution that in our understanding of how the universe worked in physics Similar to that, we've learned a lot more about the computational nature of the universe, what is computable, what is not, what's hard, what is not, putting a lot more precision into things that we vaguely knew into much more precise technical details. And he wasn't buying it. My friend was, a close friend of mine, Dave, was like very skeptical. He said, what? This is... And so oftentimes, like many of these 
for these blog posts, they end up getting written because I'm trying to convince one person, right? I'm like, all right, I'm not articulating myself well. I got to sit down and write. And I actually think that's a great frame, by the way, for writing. If you ever have writer's block, I think a lot of people have writer's block because they're writing for like a mass audience or like they put too much pressure on themselves. Or will the reader know this? Will the reader know this? No, write for a single person. You know exactly what they know. Or if you don't, just ask them, like argue with them in person and then write the perfect response to that specific individual. And it'll come out so much clearer and so much more. You won't hem and haw, you won't. And if you don't know this, here's the background material. It'll just read cleaner and it'll be much more effectively argued. And as a result, everyone will like it a lot more. So it was really me trying to convince my friend Dave that computational complexity is the second half of the 20th century equivalent revolution to physics, say, 100 years ago or 50 years prior. And the gist of it is we are undergoing it in that we have not got to precision. We don't have the final answer as to the computational nature of our universe. There's still open questions. And depending on how these questions resolve, different outcomes for what is and is not computationally possible. It's funny because this blog post written a decade after I was first exposed to these ideas in an undergraduate class at Williams. My algorithms professor gave us a lecture on this research paper by Russell Impagliazzo, a professor of theoretical computer science, who had laid out six possible worlds, which are now known as Impagliazzo's worlds. And really, this blog post is an exploration of Impagliazzo's worlds. And essentially, take the famous PNP question, right? The PNP question, people often view it as a binary, either P is equal to NP, and Anything is possible, like nothing's actually hard. P is not equal to NP, which is the world most people believe we live in. NP hard problems are hard. We just don't know. We just don't have the exact proof. But the nice thing about Mpagjazo's world is the way in which we resolve P equals NP actually gives us many more possibilities. It could be that P equals NP, not because all problems are easy and there's a constructivist polynomial time algorithm that solves NP-hard problems. It could be because our categorization of hard is just wrong, right? It does not mean that we'll have a constructive answer. We might have a non-constructive proof that these hierarchies just break down that is in no way helps us solve NP-hard problems in polynomial time, but basically breaks down the whole edifice that we've built of understanding what even are hard questions. That's possibility number one. And I don't think we're going we're gonna to go through all six because I don't think I can remember all six, which is another reason why I ended up writing it is to unpack these things. You sometimes have to rely on external scaffolding just to structure your thoughts. But it, P is not equal to NP could also resolve in a way that where P is not NP, but that does not mean that we can easily construct an instances of NP hard problems without putting in a commensurate amount of effort. What this fundamentally means is cryptography is impossible. Now, like one of the interesting things about cryptography is we actually have a pretty weak foundation at the basis of much of our cryptographic primitives. Like what precisely is hard about cryptography is more of an empirically arrived at process than it is. We know this exact problem is hard. And here's the theoretical basis for why the lower bound in which we could brute force attack this by not knowing the key is makes it, you have to try this many random guesses. We don't actually have that formal structure. We are guessing that is likely the formal structure. 
But if we are wrong about that, then we could very much end up in a world where there's just hard problems. But like, practically speaking, there are no secrets, right? Like e-commerce isn't possible. Though it's very exceedingly unlikely that we live in such a world. But the very fact that we don't have the proof that we in fact live in a world where one free functions exist is I think an interesting, profound question worthy of exploration. So laying out these six worlds and our best guesses as to where we are in this world, obviously put a gun to my head, I would guess that I'm in the, we're in the world where cryptography is possible, P is not equal to NP, the, the boring world that we all have built the scaffolding around, but we know, do not yet have the theoretical proof that we are in that for sure. So I don't think I really convinced him, but then this blog post got picked up by Marginal Revolution and run around the internet a bunch. That's the story there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, first of all, what was the general commentary slash reaction of the readers of that blog post? And then second of all, how have you seen some general argument made about those six words in that blog post play out three years from running that post? I think there's a lot of favorable sort of readers, I think. It's good to have a more accessible version of Russell Pagliazzo's work out there. I know it gets, it's a regular set of hits. I watch the website analytics once in a while. It's certainly the thing that being passed around various people. This is another thing that, that I think people in writing, even for a technical audience at a company, the steady stream of hits that like an evergreen piece of writing like this gets can add up to a significant amount over time. And it's also an argument why you should go write longer form and more detailed articles that appeal to a narrower audience, it's better to have the authoritative blog post that is recognized as such and appreciated by the experts, even if it gets a few hundred views per month, than to have something that's shallower but gets thousands of views. I remember a friend of mine, former colleague, Justin, has the he has this blog post that explains this database anomaly called RightSkew. And it was always, it's really the definitive guide to RightSkew. If you Google RightSkew, you'll like this. I think it's the number one hit. And it explains RightSkew so well that the reader comes away being like, particularly if you are like suffering from RightSkew today, if you're using an Oracle database, which is known for not being safe against RightSkew, and you're tearing your hair out, you've got all these corrupted rows in your database, you're like, what, what is going on? You read it, you're likely to come away being like, okay, I trust this guy, right? This is the only person who could probably save me from my predicament. And that's a phenomenal position to be in mm-hmm. as a company. So it's very much worth writing, even though how many people in the world care about RightSkew versus something more popular, I think is not a relevant factor here. It's much better going narrow and deep than going shallow and wide. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Going narrow and deep is also to the point, basically, I try to paraphrase here, is you get this sort of hardcore concept of 1,000 true fans by Kevin Kelly. Yes. That's really important because you only need the true fans. You rather have enthusiastic feel rather than the uncommitted man. And this is particularly true in enterprise where I remember when Snowflake IPO, it was one of the largest software IPOs in enterprise software. They had 3,000 customers. The, the, in the S1 filing, it said they had 3,000 annual paying customers. That's like such a not large number when you think about it in terms of the audience you are in fact appealing to when doing much of your communication. And it's probably, if there's 3,000 customers, it's probably a consideration set of 10 times that, 30,000. But that's, these are not like millions of hits TikToks, right? Like you, the mindset you need to have is very different. You're trying to go deep and narrow and communicate directly to roughly speaking, 30,000 people. And if you can get 10% of those, 
then you can build one of the most successful companies of all time. Like, of course, more goes into an enterprise sale than just communication. But I think in terms of setting the expectation for the order of magnitude, it's, I think, a lot more instructive. Yeah. Thanks for going around this rabbit hole and some of the intellectual exercise that you've been covering over the past years during your time there. Circling back into your career a little bit, since March of 2019, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Materialize, which builds a SQL streaming database on top of Tumblr Dataflow and Differential Dataflow, two research projects created by your co-founder, Frank Mashari. Now, you mentioned a little bit about doing towards the tail end of your PhD to try to convince Frank that you try to commercialize the project, but we've actually failed to do that. So I guess like the second time was a different outcome. And I also believe that I listened to a few of your sharing in your previous podcast that the first two checks that go into materialize actually come from the co-founders of KoshrosDB. With that context, can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah. The first time around, I was a vague sense of, Frank, you should do something. This is amazing technology. You can't just write code on the internet and put it on a GitHub repo and expect people to care. You have to do more things. You know, you should commercialize this. Why don't you do that? It wasn't a very successful pitch because I think it was very vague. And after I went to Cockroach, the pitch became a lot more specific. So I stayed in touch with Frank. I was like, Frank, here's how you do this. We have to build a layer that's accessible on top, a query layer that people understand, which is SQL. Like the way to make stream processing. So stream processing, and I still think today, it's more mainstream than it was five years ago, but it's still a specialist set of tools used by a set of specialists who really know what they're doing in data engineering. It's not accessible to the broad developer who's trying to build applications. But SQL is, like pretty much every developer at some point writes and interacts with the SQL database, right? Be it Postgres or MySQL or Snowflake, or it's a very accessible way to specify your business logic. And the database does the heavy lifting hard work to make that efficient and process that at scale and at large volumes. And I was able to articulate this a lot more effectively having seen it play out at Cockroach, saying, hey, here's how Cockroach took this complex distributed geo-replicated blah, 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 fancy stuff and simplified it for the user. It's just Postgres that scales, right? Like fundamentally, that's the pitch for a Cockroach. It's like, it's Postgres that scales pretty much infinitely. So you don't have to worry about all the problems that come with manually trying to scale your own sort of sharding scheme. And my view was the way to take streaming mainstream was to take that stream processor and wrap it in SQL in a way that allows people to get all the benefits without doing any of the manual work. That was a lot more effective as a pitch. Spencer was the very first person to think this was a phenomenal idea. He helped me a lot with fundraising. In fact, the first words out of his mouth when I told him that Frank and I were going to do was he was like, I'd love to invest. He really gave me all the sort of advice on how to fundraise and set us up for success. And I think the precision with the pitch the second time around was the big difference. Yeah, thanks for sharing a little bit of the context on how do you pitch your co-founder and starting this idea a little bit. Another thing I'm curious, so you start this initial prototype of Materialize back in March 2019 and company only came out of steel in February 2020, which is when you wrote that blog post on the website. I'm curious, like, how was that one year look like for you and Frank? So it was a lot of prototyping and early recruiting. Building a team, I think by, in that first year, was going from two to 10, right? Like it's just finding the engineers and hiring them and 
building that MVP, that initial scaffolding. That was our first year. I think the first year was, we were very fortuitous to actually get that out in February, 2020, because March, 2020 was when nobody cared anymore about the new database. It was just, in retrospect, we got very lucky there. The initial fundraising for the company was very short. That was just the month of, I think, January or less. It's a portion of January was when we raised our Series A, Frank and I. March was when we actually started to get to work. Gotcha. Let's dive deeper into the actual product capabilities, the technical aspect of Materialize. There is a white paper on Materialize website that describes it as a platform for application development that blends the scalability of PostgreSQL, the features of stream processors such as Apache Flink, with the speed of in-memory database layer Redis, or with a familiar SQL interface and an emphasis on correctness and resource efficiency. Could you mind unpacking the architectural design of Materialize at a high level? Absolutely. So Materialize is, at its core, got a computation engine, which is a stream processor. Right? So it's all about exposing and allowing the user to drive that stream processor around such that they don't actually have to think or deal with shortcomings of stream processing. I think today, pretty much every other stream processor is a pretty manual process. Right. I want to get to the point where users are getting value out of materialize without ever using the word streaming or even really caring about streaming. They're just like, this is fast, this is a database, fast database, I need fast, done, right? That should be the level at which eventually some portion of our users are getting value out of the system. Now, of course, the advanced users, the hardcore users are always going to care, and we certainly do plenty of communication. But if we're, to me, the success criteria is you should be able to get value even if you don't care about streaming. Now. How you encapsulate that stream processor is really the hard architectural challenge for the materialized system. Because the stream processor, timely data flow, is not, Frank created that before materialize even started. It was running in production at massive volumes. There's a few different aspects. One is giving people the control plane, which is the SQL, like the defining what the streams are. And the simplest way that we could conceive of exposing, say, call it 90% of streaming use cases is by exposing them as materialized views. So materialized views are a common database concept of as my data changes, please update this view and pre-materialize the result so that when I want to read it, it's already computed and I can read it for free. Now, most traditional databases have had very limited support for materialized views, right? You can materialize very simple views, but if you're doing a join or you're doing three joins, or you've got some nonlinear things like maxes or mins in your aggregations, you cannot materialize it ahead of time and maintain it efficiently. And our view was if we tell people all we do is materialize views incrementally, regardless of the complexity of the view, that's going to be an intuitive concept that they can understand the capabilities of without ever get, none. of course they may be skeptical and may say, how do you do that? And then we can explain all the streaming that we do. But in a world where we're a mature database and users can wrap their heads around the view materialization concept without ever digging into the how and then the, in the incremental streaming. The other aspects of that we've been hard at work at materialize are what I would say more traditional database things like building a storage engine, building a cloud product, 
building replication for high availability, building the seamless replication with a load balancer, building the ability to run multiple separate isolated instances of compute that sort of non-interfering so there's no sort of noisy neighbor when you add a new view that sort of knocks out your existing view because this new view is a very compute intensive. And that's what materialized. Materialized is, I would say, it's more akin to the RDBMS or traditionally people would distinguish between the database and the relational database management system, right? And materialize is very much in the management system game to enable stream processing to be more widely usable while taking care of all the management system things like availability, replication, cloud, interoperability, seamless migrations, things that absolutely matter for usable database experience. Yeah. Thanks for going over that key capabilities and explain the concept of a materialized view. Anyone who take a database class probably got introduced that concept before. And I'll be sure to include the documentation of materialized in the show notes, as well as I think there's a blog post that Frank wrote discussing the architecture overview of materialized back in March 2020 that briefly touched on some of the things that you just mentioned. Building database, as you mentioned, is precision really matters. So I want to talk a bit more about one of the core capabilities of materialized ghost streaming SQL, which take the same declarative SQL used to write database queries and run it on stream of fast changing data. Can you explain why streaming SQL is useful and go over some of these use cases? Yeah. So as I said before, it's like exposing streaming as just materialized views expressed in SQL is greatly simplifies what the user has to deal with. And the way we do this at materialize is using the incremental compute capabilities of differential data flow in the underlying sort of stream processing library. Other systems in the past have used sort of SQL-like languages for building pipeline. This is a thing that you can do and you have been able to do for close to a decade at this point, which is build the streaming data pipeline using some SQL and some fairly limited SQL. But this, in my view, is very different from using the full breadth of complex SQL query and having a relational database management system figure out what is the underlying data flow and what are the indexes that need to be built that can be efficiently maintained incrementally. It's to me a little bit like the difference between Snowflake and Hive, right? Like Hive back in the Hadoop days was SQL on Hadoop, right? Like you could just build on paper. Like, oh, you want to write SQL? You just write SQL using Hive. And it never really worked. It wasn't the, it's really hard for me to explain to somebody who hasn't actually used these products, like what is the lived experience that's so radically different of using Snowflake versus using Hive? The problem in Hive is you are building pipelines, batch pipelines, using a SQL-like language that is very limited in its expressiveness. And similarly on streaming, I think there's many sort of SQL pipeline builder tools that have that same difficulty of using them because when you're coming in with some business logic, mm -hmm. SQL, maybe 30 lines of SQL, 40 lines of SQL, joining six different data sources, has subquery in there, a bunch of complex aggregations. Taking that and converting it into a set of staged pipelines that executes that query is the hard job of the database. And asking a user to do that manually is asking them to implement a query optimizer and query planner manually. At which point, why even have the database? Like, it's just getting in your way. You're just asking them to do the work. Like, the SQL isn't helping. It's getting in your way. And people have done that, right? There's the microservice-oriented streaming stacks that use Flink or Kafka Streams. There are many organizations that are quite effective at deploying that. But not every organization is going to be able to 
recruit and build data teams that can do that. Uber can do it. Netflix can do it. Can every company in the Fortune 500 do it? Unlikely. Yeah, thanks for providing that context. A little bit about the evolution of the product itself. And also thanks for distinguishing between database and relational database management system. I think that concept is going to play a pretty important explanation as we talk about the cloud offering and materialize in the upcoming question. But first, I want to talk about the open source project, the source available project materialized. And up until this point, it has over 4,000 stars. And I believe Joss Slack channel has over 1.4 thousand participants. What tactics have you found to be successful in order to raise the adoption and contribution to this open source library? By far, the number one is just the blogging and the technical communication. I think the source available GitHub and trying to make, I think there's a distinction between folks who try and make that understandable by outsiders and folks who don't really care, right? Like it's just like, there's some projects that you see that have open sourced by large companies where there's no commit history and there's no issue tracker. And it's just like, you get what you get. Here's the source. That's not really helpful. I think our open development philosophy makes it something that people can engage with from the outside. This is part of our philosophy on source availability, right? So it's not true open source because it's not an open OSI approved open source license. There are limitations on what you can do, but we still think the source availability has huge value for users because they get to see what we're developing. They get to see how we're thinking about things. They get to see the bugs, how we're dealing with the bugs that they're facing and whether this we're actually making progress towards fixing those bugs or with many vendors and with many pieces of software that users use, you, you submit a bug report, it's just a black box, and then you get one day an answer or like you never hear back ever again. I would say source availability, our philosophy around it is closer to having an open scientific process. Like, like it's more akin to open science than it is to open source as traditionally defined as you can do whatever you want, including commercializing. We definitely, as a company, have a vested interest in commercializing mm. our work at Materialize. But we don't want to compromise the open communication nature and the benefits of open science. And that also goes into the blog post. And I think this really resonates with a lot of developers and builders. They want to see how these problems are solved. And that's why fundamentally they join a community or participate in GitHub or read our blog posts and share our blog posts around. My main takeaway is there isn't really a limit to how much you can share. Like it's the same thing with like, technical blogging, like you just, there isn't a like limit on like how long you're like, one of the things really fun about this podcast is we've gone on so many tangents, right? There is no limit on the number of hours that we can upload. And when you start to view this as a way to naturally expound until we run out of things to talk about, you get a different product to something where it's like a tight 20 minute yeah. content farm, right? It's the same thing with blog posts. Like you have a blog post that is here's three ways to build streaming plus man, like nobody wants to read that. Like you don't want to read it. I don't want to read that. I'm sure like some marketer somewhere thinks that they can crank out 300 of those and it's all useless. And, but you write one good blog post that goes through like all of the subtle correctness problems you will get. You'll have to deal with when building a deep streaming pipeline. You're going to get like way less views. You're going to get like a thousand views, which is like not, but they're likely to be the right thousand people who actually face this problem and have purchasing power decisions. And that's way more valuable than getting 10,000 hits on some content farm article. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the power of meeting in public and open communication. And I really like your 
analogy to the concept of open science rather than just like historical definition of open source. Since 2021, your team has been hard work building Materialized Cloud, which hosts and maintains materialized departments for users, automating administration tasks like hardware provisioning, database setup, upgrades, and backups. And I think there was a blog post talking about like how you're looking for beta users. And obviously there's been a lot of onboarding and conversation regarding the testing of this product over the past few months. Can you walk through some of the major enterprise grade features back it into Materialized Cloud? Yeah, I'm super excited. We're we getting into a early preview of this and I can't wait to make that more broadly available, but we have a huge set of features planned uh, this summer for Materialized Cloud that particularly tailored towards the enterprise use cases and our enterprise early adopters. Namely, it's about... So Materialize source, the source available product is about building an effective system end-to-end. You have all the SQL. There's no SQL that you can't write in the free version, but the enterprise is all about building reliable, highly available systems that can really harness the power at scale and in critical use cases. This means that people care about high availability, namely through replicated instances of materialized that are always in sync. So the first big sort of tentpole feature of materialized cloud enterprises, replication, right? So seamless replication, which means that if there is a failure of a single machine, the user doesn't even notice because there's a replica that's catching up or has already, or has been advancing at the exact same speed that is taking over the workload and doing this in a way that preserves correctness such that the user cannot notice anything because the two replicas are exactly in sync. That's the first feature. The second one is an enterprise-grade storage layer that stores all the historical data on S3. So what this helps is it just gives very efficient, cheap storage that's very high performance for people storing streams. So we want our users to be able to point streams at materialized cloud of very high volume, of very high throughput, and just forget about them, not worry about them. Like the historical data is getting compacted, is getting efficiently warehoused in cheap object stores and accessible by replicas of materialize very efficiently. The third one is use case isolation. So what this basically means is, and we see this with our users, is you start with one use case, but the moment you're like, oh, I can build everything in SQL, you start to build more and more things in SQL on top of materialize. And a lot of databases have this problem where if they are not good at use case isolation and scalability, not in the sense of scaling horizontally to more workloads, in the sense of scaling to more workloads so that you can have workload one, two, and three sit and not interfere with each other. And if you don't have that, then what use case one is probably an extremely important one, which is why you haven't bothered adopting a new system. And if use case two threatens use case one, you're not gonna let use case two touch the database, right? And so you're not gonna, Sort of capped upside in value for what this new system is going to bring you. And that sort of limits the whole possibility of the database. So using separated storage on object store and replicas that can share and scalably share the storage, you can have the replicas evolve to host different sets of queries, which means that it's not just usable for high availability, but it's usable for use case separations. You can have cluster one and cluster two be identical serving use case one. These are replicas of use case one sitting with a load balancer in front of it. But you can have cluster three host a different set of views for a completely different use case. And they can all share the input streams, share and co-evolve 
their SQL, the way you model your SQL. And this really unlocks the power of adopting a system like Materialize to power increasingly more and more of your business logic in real-time SQL. And then the fourth one that I'm, that's also necessary, not to talk it down, but is horizontal scalability. So building clusters that can scale horizontally to multi-machine. And so all of these things are coming out later this summer, and I'm extremely excited because this is the enterprise foundational features to really use Materialize at scale and across an entire organization. Absolutely. And maybe this is also a good time to talk about those initiatives. You already mentioned about the product details a bit. And in fact, it actually open source this ambitious roadmap of Materialize. The goal is to make it more resilient and battle tested. And related to what you just mentioned on your answer, there was this very recent blog post that Frank written called Materialize Unbundled Cloud Architecture that details the shift from Materialize Single Battery to Materialize Cloud. Absolutely. That blog post explains in, in great detail these four, how we arrive at these four features. It's a little bit unusual, right, to launch four big foundational features. You might imagine that we staged them out. You spend six months building horizontal scale, then you spend six months building replication. Turns out, like, these are all use the same underlying core enterprise primitive, which is the separation of storage and compute, right? Once you have the separation of storage and compute, all of these features fall out pretty straightforward fashion. And Frank's blog post an excellent detailing of how we are we're separating storage and compute, which is why we materialize enterprise is really landing all at once later this summer. I see. And that concept of like separating storage and compute, I think that's what kind of Snowflake done has done for us. Yes, I think Snowflake is the best example of doing that in batch. And in many ways, what we are trying to do at materialize is do what Snowflake has done for batch, do it for streaming. I think that's the most succinct way of explaining sort of the architectural decisions. And in many ways, like what is different from Snowflake compared to Hadoop and the Hadoop ecosystem is exactly the way we think about how to take Kafka microservice architectures. Because Hadoop was not unsuccessful, right? There's a lot of companies that got a lot of value out of Hadoop. But Snowflake really took the power of the cloud. If you take a lot of Hadoop talking points, like they're all correct, like in the long arc of history sense, right, which is everyone's going to move to the cloud. Data sets are getting too big, so people have to build distributed systems. And the volume of data is only going to grow. All of these things were correct, right? But turns out there's a fourth thing that the Hadoop ecosystem didn't get right, which was, and users want all of the, the one systems that do all of the things that they don't want to think about them. Right? Mm -hmm. want it to look exactly the same as it's looked in the past, which is a SQL system that they just write the SQL that they've always been writing. And I think that was the core insight in Snowflake was to take these huge innovations in batch scale out cloud native processing, but wrap it up in a way that looks and feels exactly like what users have been doing for decades, which is a SQL layer that just scales under the hood. And that's really, I think, a, as an analogy, what's going on in streaming today. Like, all these streaming proponents are correct. The world needs to move to lower and lower latency. People can't wait for days for that. Correct. This stuff has to be cloud native. It has to be simple. It has to be cheap. Correct. This thing has to scale out, like, the massive replicated distributed. Correct. I think the fundamental thing that we bring is all of this is true. But people want to just write the SQL that they've always been writing. So they don't want to have to reinvent and throw out their entire data architectures and start over from scratch. And that's really the, I would say, the core value tenet, the founding principle behind why we started Materialize. 
Absolutely. Yeah, right. I love that analogy and how you said Mazzola is trying to done for streaming analytics the way that Snowflake has done for batch analytics. Just one quick note on this exciting upcoming months in terms of, you already talk a lot about this you know, technical product development work being done for materialized cloud. Do you envision any certain go-to-market challenges that needed to be addressed to just evangelize materialized cloud? In terms of challenges, look, enterprise go-to-market is hard and complex and isn't done in a day, right? Like I think my core lesson from Cockroach is this is going to take some time. And as a result, you need to start evangelizing and communicating far earlier than your product is even ready in order to evolve with the ecosystem. I think you also have to take a lot of care to fit within the ecosystem. People don't choose a data platform or a data tool in isolation, right? Like you have to, a, a huge power, by the way, of standard SQL is that sort of out of the box, you do already already integrate with BI tools, with various kinds of data integration tools, but you need to have a strategy from day one to engage with the ecosystem as it is. And you don't have the luxury of building an awesome tool in a vacuum that reinvents everything. And I see this sometimes in various places where you know, in order to adopt this tool, you got to switch to their own little custom visualization layer and their own observability stack and your own monitoring stack. It's like, mm, that's not going to work because from the user's perspective, you're just one out of many tools and you may solve an important challenge, but if you're causing them to have to throw everything out, they're not going to do it. I love your point about how complex enterprise GTM can be and then way in advance to identify for positioning and awareness, market needs, and then evolve to a little bit here and the messaging for the product is ready to release. And your point about how did it fit into the ecosystem really transitioned super well to my next question. Okay, strategy of materialized product development has been facilitating integrations with other tools in the infrastructure ecosystem, such as DBT, Red Panda, and Cube. Where does see materialized fit into the quickly evolving modern data stack? Yeah, I think there's certain parts of that are just like, table stakes like dbt like people do not want to evolve like evolving your sql business logic is a complex task and people have correctly converged on using dbt to specify their model and their schemas and their shared workflows because it's a much better way of building an organization for productivity and to me that's a table stakes thing that if you're saying, hey, you need to move your batch pipelines to streaming because you don't want this once a day, you can want this sort of real time and up to the second. The answer can't be throw out everything you've done and rebuild a microservice on top of a stream processor. That's just not a workable strategy. And so there's table stakes integrations like that that really rely upon the deep SQL integration, the ability to really lift a as existing written dbt model on sql from batch to materialize then there's other integrations that work well because the two tools together give you a new way of doing things that's in a greenfield project are superior a good example of this is say red panda right so red panda is a much more developer friendly stream processor and if you're building from scratch an event-sourced application, it's, I would argue, the right choice to have a lean, clean streaming architecture where you're, you're sourcing all your events into your stream processor and 
you're building application use cases using just SQL, so you're able to use whatever web framework that you are most productive in and telling it to just read SQL directly from materialized run it set queries. I think for each and every integration to be valuable, there has to be a clear story as to how there's value for users of both tools coming in either direction. So the DBT user who's new to materialize or the materialized user that's new to DBT, not everything's going to be bi-directional. It's very much case by case, tool by tool. And you have to be very thoughtful to and very clear as to why these things make sense together. I think that's a very important point regarding partnership, right, in general, which is identifying that share value prop that can benefit both vendors. And it doesn't have to be bidirectional, right? There's certainly partnerships where one party relies on the other, like in a much more straightforward way. That's fine too. Like the, the relationship is just like we bring you deals and you make more money because we exist and you help us because you solve it. Like this is the early sort of relationship with Snowflake and Fivetran, right? Like a major problem in Snowflake early on was just getting data into Snowflake. And Fivetran really solved that problem in a very straightforward way. And the relationship was one way. Snowflake brought Fivetran more money. And that's a great relationship, right? Like you can build a great partnership off of that one dire unidirectional relationship. Absolutely. But then there's some that are bidirectional. And again, it's very much, I think it's case by case. It depends very much on the circumstances and the specifics of the two products. And so, yeah, I'm very excited to see more future partnership announcement that materialize from share in uh, the rest of the year and the upcoming years as well. So let's take up your product head and put on your CEO head. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. What valuable lessons have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about materialized mission? I think I would go further. I'd say hiring is the most important responsibility of a CEO. I think the CEO job is primarily a hiring job. I think the clear communication helps, right? So you have to be able to articulate very clearly what materialize is doing such that you attract the right set of people. I think there's less convincing and selling and more like sourcing, I guess, more being very clear, like what you stand for and what you're building and what's exciting for people's careers. We've gotten a, a lot of the folks we've hired are in network. I think one of my beliefs is that referrals and referral networks are outsized ways to hire. One, because they have a prior relationship, there's a relationship of trust. Look at it from the perspective of somebody making a decision of which company to join, right? Like joining a startup is scary. There's so much risk. You're much more likely to do it if you have known the people at that company for a while and you trust their judgment because you don't have all the answers, right? You have to trust that the people at that company are people you would trust to find the answers over time. And that requires a sort of longer lived relationship. And I recognize that this creates sort of additional challenges for building a diverse team because your network is folks that you've known. But it's really, I would say, more of a question of it's getting people to trust you sufficiently to join the company. And that requires just an amount of time. I think recruiting is also another thing where you just have to play the long game. There's going to be people who you try and recruit and it's going to take you several years before they join. I think that's not an un, 
usual situation where it takes you multiple years and over multiple engagements and perhaps multiple companies where you try and recruit somebody, that's absolutely par for the course. Again, it's primarily because of the trust. If you have been consistent over several years as to what you're doing, what the opportunity is, and you've been making incremental progress in a way that gives them sufficient evidence, they're more likely to join forces. Yeah, so hyper-personalize, be patient with recurring strategy and to the most important people who, who trust you to make your decision. And just a quick note on, because you mentioned a bit about diversity and one of the potential bias of hiring just from your own network. Tactically speaking, like what have you been thinking regarding building a high-performance culture? I think uh, that's a great question. Building a high-performance culture requires, I think, clear communication and expectations. I think the number one source of not having high performance is not having alignment. And I've certainly seen there are times when we have been higher performing as a team because we have much more alignment as to what we're building. I think high performance usually means that people can can work independently while minimizing communication because everybody believes or has a clear enough understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it such that they're able to independently make decisions as if they are highly coordinated. It's like watching a high-performance soccer team where like, they pass the ball without looking because they know that their teammate's going to be exactly where they think they're going to be there. It's like this moment of extremely high, highly coordinated behavior that starts, again, with clear communication, with clear understanding of product direction and values. I think we, I, one of my learnings is to, again, over-invest in, in this communication and clear articulation of what we're doing and why. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that context. Yeah. Finding early adopters is also notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. And you mentioned a little bit earlier during that one year between the initial conception, multiple prototype to actually like announcing the product. I'm curious, what challenges did your team have to overcome to find the early design partners across use cases in industries such as e-commerce, financial service, IoT, logistic, and more? Yeah, I think a huge amount of pretty much all of our users come inbound, right? So again, it's back to the technical communication. In fact, many of the use cases, we didn't actually think of them. Like the users came to us and says, oh, you're solving exactly this thing. And we're like, in, in, in e-commerce, and we're like, we don't know anything about e-commerce. What are you talking about? I think that's overstating a little bit. But the use cases oftentimes are driven by our users and customers, and they educate us because we're building... When you're building a database or when generally building anything that's a horizontal platform that is applicable in multiple verticals, your users are always going to know more about the verticals than you do. And as a result, the communication is more geared towards explaining general principles, what you're solving, the core technical problem, and helping letting your users teach you over time. Every single use case on our website or case study is our users teaching us an amazing set of facts about their industry where they're the experts and using Materialize in ways that, and certainly it's a great fit in, ter in terms of the technical applicability, but in ways that are driven entirely by them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thanks for providing a bit more context on 
how do you find prices relevant design partners across industries? And I'm, I'm curious, yeah, can you share maybe one or two most notable use cases, you know, using materialized for a certain clients, whether it's through time analytics or AI, ML, yeah, just to paint a picture of applications to materialize. Yeah, in, in the Absolutely. And I, I think it's helpful to also consider the journey of the, from the user's perspective. In fact, most users start building their library of those in batch, right? So they maybe explore, when you explore a database, you do so in batch, right? You, you try to control as many variables as possible. So you certainly don't want the data changing under you. And so oftentimes people get, get analytics off the ground first, building dbt model, building a SQL library of insights in their company, in their, and the next step, which is where real time starts to matter, is when they're starting to take action on a regular basis off of the results of that of that analytics. Now, if they're doing so with a human in the loop, batch actually works pretty fine. You can rerun on a batch and batch job, get the results, and then uh, have create a report or a dashboard, and a human looks at that, and that's fine because. How quickly is a human going to respond to that anyway? It's certainly not sub-second. It's when you start to do automated actions that speed really becomes important because as people quickly see just by, by virtue of uh, looking at the data that they take actions on, there's, there's a, a huge penalty to increase latency, right? So take e-commerce, right? So e-commerce notification, personalization, is a use case that we have a user. So take, uh, so one of our, our users, Drizzly, uses materialized to power notifications, right? And these are, these need to happen when the analytics engineer determines is the most valuable time to do this because it's a precious resource and you don't want to sense outdated information. You don't want to send something after it's too late. And that's when migrating a pipeline from batch to streaming becomes a priority, right? So if there was a human in the loop triggering that, then you certainly wouldn't need real-time capabilities. It's when you're doing automated actions, I think, is the way to think about when a system like Materialize or a streaming pipeline in general becomes far more valuable. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, I guess the key thing you mentioned here is identify clients who already been doing some level of batch analytics and then given the scale of their workload and they start looking at streaming solution, that is when yeah, Materialize can make itself available in their consideration. Right? Yes. Perfect. But yeah, we talk about dealing with employees, we talk about dealing with clients, customers, the last group of folks that I want to hear your thoughts regarding is dealing with investors. Materialize has raised over $100 million in total funding to date from top-tier VC firms such as Lightspeed, Kleiner Perkins, and Redpoint. What fundraising advice could you give to fathers who are seeking the right investors for the startups? I think there's two main sources of advice. One is that you need to consider your investor or your yeah your VC stakeholders at the entire life cycle 
from which they are going to view the investment and the entire life cycle of your company. So this is something that I think got a very clear understanding from Spencer at Cockroach because databases are capital intensive and have a long time to a payoff. So you have to, it's, it's particularly hard to fundraise for because you're asking for a lot more money and you're saying it's going to take a lot longer than they usually used to. So the bar you have to meet is very high. The second one is that I think about it less as firms and more as individuals. I think where venture capital is different as an asset class or a stakeholder class from, say, public markets or private equity is you are much more dealing with individuals making a bet on team, the, com the team as a, on, on the company side, then you are presenting a spreadsheet with sort of a ROI on capital invested in a way that can be spreadsheet driven. In fact, like if you take a other asset classes like private equity or public markets, certainly there's investors who, who never even meet or diligence the team itself. So it's much more personal of a relationship that you will be developing. So you should take a lot of care in choosing partners you're going to be dealing with, you can't fire a board member, right? You can't, this is a relationship for a decade, right? So you need to approach it. I think actually, I actually think PhD was the right background because it's in many ways, it's very similar to choosing an advisor, right? It's like, you're going to be stuck with this person or you're going to have to abandon this career is really the mental framework that you need to do, you need to have going into fundraising. And if you do well, if you pick, if there's a good match, the returns are going to be very much outsized. So that's how we go about picking. Now, in terms of actually pitching or convincing them to, to spend money or to give you money, I guess, so that you can spend it. I'm not sure I have the most actionable advice because I had a very, well, I guess I do, Just stepping back from my own experiences. The single most effective thing that we had going for us was the fact that we had the backing and endorsement of successful founders, which was Spencer and Peter at Cockroach. I think that went a long way in our initial fundraising experience. And since then, Redpoint is a shared investor from Cockroach and Materialize. The Redpoint led Cockroach's Series B, led our Series C. And in many ways, I think the way they understood us as a team was because they had half a decade of involvement with Cockroach and that shared relationship that helped them build the, sec the relationship directly with us. And I'd say the advice I would give is you should work at a very high-performing venture-backed startup if you have an interest. I think most people, the mistake they make is to start a company too soon rather than too late. I don't actually think that there is a too late in most industries or in most companies. It's You can always be better prepared by seeing more. In, in retrospect, 
would I have benefited from an additional year cockroach? Absolutely. There's certainly things that I could have seen on the sort of commercialization and revenue scaling that I am now learning or having to surround myself with experts and domain experts and executives who have seen that firsthand because I have not seen a certain scale firsthand and I'm only doing that secondhand. So I think, uh, and there's a whole host of companies that are very successful that started by seasoned executives who spent years and years learning from other companies and drawing from those experiences. So I would say that the most important thing you can do is choosing the company you work at and choosing people who are high integrity, high and generous with their time because their endorsement and help will go a long way to building your relationships with VCs. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Really emphasizing on the durability of one's career, right? Really, what you said here is in, in understand the space, the nature of the technology, the industry that you work on, in this case, database, which is capital intensive with long horizon, and then finding the people with that same kind of conviction for what you're building because you're going to stick with that, you know, this person for a long period of time. But yeah, like thinking long term and relationship early to prove your value upfront. Yeah. And I, you know, this was a sort of conscious decision on my part. And as I mentioned earlier on, the reason I picked databases and was looking at databases, networks, operating systems was because they were capital intensive, right? So I think I went in pretty eyes wide open as to the capital intensive nature of the business that I wanted to start, which made me a little bit more cognizant of the fact that, hey, you're not going to get hundred million bucks without years and years of a relationship uh, to convince people that you can be trusted with that level of responsibility. And this is a, just a fun note to conclude our main set of conversation, which is that reflecting on the arc of your career, how would you see to be the differences and similarities between being in academia, working as a specialty student, as a researcher versus being a father, a startup father? I think there's a lot of similarities. I think you see a lot of former academics or successful startup founders. There's a high degree of uncertainty. There's a high degree of operating under uncertainty. There's no sort of set playbook and you sort of have to figure it out as you go along. There's long feedback loops, right? So you don't really know if you're doing the right thing for a very long period of time, uh, I think. And it's pretty lonely. Right? Like you have to, so the PhD is five years, certainly takes at least five years to build a company and certainly more. I think academia and founding startups are, are very similar in that fashion. I think where they differ is there's, I think this is more, it's like in the success case, they look more similar, but in the failure case, each failure is, each failed startup and each failed academic career is unique in its own way. But I think in the success cases, they are more similar trajectories than not. Absolutely. So Arjun, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final profit segment, which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you can provide kind of quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the database slash distributed system community whose work you admire. Three 
I'll start with Kyle Kingsbury with the Jepson tests and the sort of work that he did single-handedly to publicize and hold databases to a much higher standard. It's innovative, it's research, it's practical, it's everything that I admire about moving the industry forward as a whole. I think Kyle Kingsbury would be my number one. Number two, I've learned a lot from Bob Muglia, the former CEO of Snowflake. I think he's, in many ways, changed or created the modern data stack or led the modern data stack. He, consumption-based pricing, usage-based credits, all of these things are, are ways in which he innovated to align value with customers and enterprise databases. This is maybe a more commercial-minded pick, right? Innovated on the how these services are built and delivered and really set the new standard for how software is, is commercialized. I think third one, I'd have to go with, this is maybe an unfair pick, but Frank McSherry, I think, my co-founder. And going back to writing, the thing that convinced me that Frank was correct and had really built a next generation stream processing platform was all due to good writing, right? So he was one man with a blog writing extremely persuasive and convincing research and benchmarks in a way that was counter to how distributed systems were built across the whole industry. And he was so convincing. It's to me a real power of sort of a single individual doing really good work in 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 convincing the next generation of builders and users that's the right way to to rearchitect. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing those profiles. Number two, what is one book that you would recommend for data practitioners to cultivate and, and I'm not so sure if this is general or data practitioners. I think by far the book that that I viewed as the most valuable to get more entrepreneurial during my PhD was when I read Peter Thiel's Zero to One. I think Peter Thiel is maybe the most, I think the single best thinker in 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 sort of startups and entrepreneurship today. The I want to unpack a little bit on, on the word that you use there, read, which is it's a book that I have read four or five times. I think it's worth uh, worthy of close reading. Probably spend days reading a single chapter from that book and still not cover all the ground that it covers. I think it's the single best book for anybody who's trying to do anything entrepreneurial that, that they have to read, not just like skim, like to deeply engage with. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a, like a startup Bible. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Oh, this is a perilous uh, topic. I have to, I don't tweet very much. I used to tweet a lot more because I think my tweets are more of a liability than an asset. The, the very likely to, to one day get into trouble with my tweets. I think. So at least on the data side, I consume a lot of, it's a really nice data tweet. In fact, many of my spiciest tweets I don't send. I just launder them, share them in messages to my friends, and then they go, can I tweet that? And some of them have done very well. But I'm more of the uh, writer's room type because I, I, can't, I can't be trusted to tweet myself into trouble. 
too many responsibilities at this point. So I'm going to have to just pass on that. But I will say some of the tweets that, that have done well in data Twitter, I, I have I've shared writing credits in the writer's room. Fair enough. Um, I'll say no more. Yeah, uh, Adrian, I, I think that's a great way to, to end our conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you today, talking about your early upbringing, growing up in India and went to boarding school, your time at Williams exploring the ramps of liberal arts education, your PhD work in distribution system, privacy and security in University of Pennsylvania, your time working as an engineer at Cultural Lab, dissecting technical content, sort of database, and even some of your very high-level takeaway on the philosophy of computer complexity, as well as your current journey with materialized building a very advanced streaming database for the modern streaming data stack, various tactical lesson learns regarding product development, finding design partners, integrating with other tools in the ecosystem, hiring the right people and building high performance culture, and finally seeking the right investors to choose to invest for your startup. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today into the show notes. Listeners can have a chance to take a look, dissect, and consume your content across the platform, as well as upcoming exciting updates with Materialize. Yeah, I really enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you as well. That's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jamestaley.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now. 